For the sake of this episode, I want to share with you two very personal things because I think it's very clearly going to show why we need to cover this. Um, well, outside of these two reasons, one is this is on the ABOG MOC reading list, which is great because we're going to highlight this as well uh, and help you get those questions correct. But when I saw the, the list of articles that ABOG had picked, had released for the maintenance of certification, and I saw eating disorders in children and adolescents, I thought, man, finally, thankfully, we, we have something here that people are, you know, for good or bad, you know, forced to read, at least in OBGYN, if they pick this article, um, which can help change this narrative. Uh, because I'm sure many people still today hold the same beliefs that I held uh, when I was an undergraduate student in college and probably up until one or two years of my medical school training. I mean, I had it completely wrong. Uh, so the first thing I'm going to share with you is my own uh, myths and misperceptions as to who gets eating disorders and who's affected by them. I mean, for years, I thought that, hey, if little Sally doesn't want to eat, she throws away her burger. That's her choice. I mean, that's her thing, right? <laughs> she doesn't have to eat it. She doesn't want to. That's her decision. Uh, and this is only an issue for rich, white young girls who don't, who don't like their figure. I mean, that's really what I thought. And I'm sure many others feel that way. Um, but that's not the case. We now know, of course, that eating disorders are not a personal choice. They are a result of genetics and environmental issues that trigger this maladaptive psychological stress response that has a phenotype that's expressed as control over food and dietary patterns. Um, it's maladaptive and it's not a personal choice. It's not that easy as, okay, I'm done and now I'm going to eat. And, and I held that belief uh, that it was a personal choice for years and, and I feel bad that, that I held that. The second thing I want to share with you is a little bit more personal, and it's quite ironic that I felt that it was a personal choice and didn't recognize it for what it is, which is a maladaptive, you know, psychological stress response. Uh, and at the risk of giving TMI, uh, I'm going to share with you anyway. As I've said before, look, I've got issues and I just want you to know in all transparency uh, who I am and the good, the not so good, and sometimes the ugly. Um, and I've shared this with you in previous podcasts. We even have our, our TEDx on it. Um, and unlike most people with issues, I'm just very open with it because I think it's part of my healing process. Well, here it is. It's really for about three years while I was in medical school uh, with the loss of a very significant love relationship uh, with the same girl I had uh, this relationship with even from high school that ended in medical school. Uh, I thought that the only way that I could exert control uh, and help my feeling of lack of control at the loss of that relationship uh, was by controlling um, the kinds of food that I ate and when I ate it. Uh, so in all transparencies, for three years, uh, I suffered from uh, binge eating and compulsory mechanisms. That's bulimia nervosa. And it wasn't until a good friend came up to me and said, man, I know what you're doing and you're wrecking your body and you better get that right. So I'm thankful for friends, for friends who could actually put that mirror up to me uh, and I could work through that. No, it wasn't easy. Yes, it was hard. Um, but I'm thankful to say that I have worked through that. I now view food differently. Now, there's still moments that I, I struggle. And I, I, I try that old control mechanism tries to, to come back, but I'm able to put that down. 
So this is very personal to me because, yeah, for three years, uh, I had this weird episode, <laughs> this weird point in my life of basically what met criteria for bulimia nervosa. Uh, and I'm thankful that I recognize it now. Uh, and I recognized it then through help. But now I really recognize how, how dangerous that game was. And I'm thankful that I could have overcome that. This is definitely not a personal choice. There is this weird maladaptive stress response that's a combination of genetic factors and environmental. I'm going to explain that in this episode. So anyway, at the risk of giving two at TMI, <laughs> um, we're done with that personal sharing. And now let's get into eating disorders in children and adolescents, which comes from the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology and is on the ABOG MOC list from February 2023. Just trying to keep everyone up to date on evidence-based practice because medicine moves real fast. This is Clinical Pearls. Because this article we're covering is on the ABOG Maintenance of Certification reading list from February 2023, when you hear this phrase, and you may want to remember this, that may be a clue that it's on the ABOG quiz for this article. If your first thought is eating disorders, wait a minute, I'm in women's health, that's not my area, it's not my zone, uh, this doesn't apply. It absolutely applies because our patients don't come to us saying, by the way, I binge and purge or I severely restrict my food intake. No, no, they come to us because they're afraid because of the secondary effects that those things cause, like their effects on the cycle. That's why we have to be comfortable in recognizing and screening and helping to facilitate when necessary the appropriate referrals for patients who are at risk for these conditions. Patients do present with weight changes or changes in cycles like amenorrhea, and this is something particularly vulnerable for those with gender-diverse identities. We have to be able to identify these so that they can get appropriate counseling and treatment early before some long-term health issues start to raise their ugly head. Let's kill one of the first myths out there that we already talked about in the intro. Eating disorders affect youths and adolescents of all genders, all sizes, all ethnicities, and all socioeconomic backgrounds. So we've got to get that right. 40% of these cases do appear in adolescents, usually between the ages of 15 and 19. And the age of onset of anorexia nervosa or bulimia nervosa and even binge eating episodes, otherwise known as BED, is actually starting to show an earlier mean age at onset. It's now down to about age 12. Now, I have a 12-year-old daughter, and it would break my heart if this was going on because I would think I'd be able to recognize that the truth is some of these things are so covert that they are easy to miss. That's why we have to be observant and aware. Here's why this matters, and you may want to remember this. Anorexia nervosa, or AN, has the highest mortality rate of all psychiatric disorders at a rate of 5 to 6%. One in five deaths in those with anorexia nervosa occur because of suicide with other causes of death, including medical complications due to malnutrition or substance abuse. And let's kill this other myth right at the start as well. 
eating disorders are not the result of an individual's choice. They're the result of interactions between genetic factors and environmental factors at critical time points in development. There are actually something called the Nine Truths About Eating Disorders that the Academy of Eating Disorders has developed, and you can find those online. But I just want to share three with you that really strike me because it actually solidifies this as not somebody's personal decision to just not eat or to exert control over their food. The first thing is to remember is that eating disorders are not choices, but again, are serious biologically influenced illnesses. Next, genes and environment do play important roles in the development of eating disorders. But even though that's the case, genes alone cannot predict who will develop an eating disorder. Now that we've settled that, let's cover some of the more well-known types of eating disorders. Of course, we know about anorexia nervosa, or AN. That's characterized by low energy intake relative to requirements, so this leads to significant weight loss or poor growth. This energy restriction is usually driven by weight or shape concerns and body image distortion. Now, in contrast to previous diagnostic criteria, there is now no cutoff for low BMI and amenorrhea is not required for the diagnosis. In contrast to anorexia nervosa that does have that body dysmorphia aspect to it, there's ARFID, that's Avoidance Restricted Food Intake Disorder. Now, unlike anorexia, these patients do present with malnutrition, but they do not have a body image concern. They restrict dietary intake for some other factor. It could be sensory, like they have some issue with their taste, or it could be a temperament issue, like they have little interest in food, or they just have poor appetite. They could have a irrational fear, like a fear of choking or persistent vomiting. Or it could be an emotional factor, like anxiety or maybe some somatic complaints. Or a medical condition, like persistent food allergies or gastrointestinal disorders. So avoidant restrictive food intake disorder is something you may want to remember. It's something that's kind of external to the patient. It does not present with body image concerns. And for example, let's say it's a high school student who's super worried about applying to college and she's trying to get her SAT done and she's just studying all the time and she's super stressed out, that is a form of avoidance restrictive food intake disorder because of an emotional aspect. In this case, uh, the anxiety and the stress response, but it's not because of a body image concern. Then we have BN, or bulimia nervosa. This is characterized by frequent, at least once weekly for three months. These episodes of binging followed by a compensatory behavior due to body dissatisfaction. Now, remember this, that these compensatory mechanisms, these compensatory behaviors can include things like self-induced vomiting, laxative use, excessive exercise, fasting, or for those who have access, even misuse of insulin. Remember, that's bulimia nervosa that has these compensatory responses. Patients with bulimia nervosa are typically within or above normal weight range. But in contrast to that, then there's binge eating disorder, or BED. Now, this is similar to bulimia nervosa, but it's without the compensatory behavior. So they just literally just binge. That's binge eating disorder, not to be confused with bulimia nervosa, which is binge eating accompanied by compensatory behaviors. 
Now that we have those traits, let's get into how these present. The truth is it can present in a variety of ways. An eating disorder should be suspected in any patient who presents with weight loss, functional hypothalamic amenorrhea, unexplained growth or pubertal delay, restrictive or abnormal eating behaviors, anyone who is over-exercising or who has persistent vomiting. Studies have shown that transgender youth are particularly vulnerable to eating disorders, so be on the lookout in that patient population. A recent study showed that youth at risk for or meeting criteria for avoidant restrictive food intake might present to the gynecologist or the women's healthcare professional for concerns related to pelvic pain or menstrual abnormalities. These youths are more likely to have low BMI and anxiety symptoms, so remember those red flags when you're talking to patients, especially in the adolescent or early adult population. Keep your guard on the lookout for eating disorder diagnoses. We're talking about clinical presentation, right? Well, the young athlete is not immune. Now, this is kind of something that's counterintuitive. They're like, well, they're an athlete. I mean, they're super healthy, right? And they got to watch what they eat. Yeah, but that's a fine line. Now, I learned in the young athlete, the young female athlete, those who present with menstrual problems, I learned the term the female athlete triad, right? That was disordered eating amenorrhea, and then osteoporosis or, or low bone mass. That was the triad. But that's now been replaced. Oh, I know what you're thinking. Oh, great. Here's another name change. Yeah, and that's what we're here for, right? Medicine moves fast. So while you can still call it the female athlete triad, the more descriptive and the more universally accepted term, because it's actually broader, is relative energy deficiency in sports. Relative energy deficiency in sports. Those key letters are R-E-D-S. Reds. Reds was introduced in 2007 as a replacement of the term female athlete triad because it really was much more inclusive of other pathology beyond those just three things of disordered eating and amenorrhea and osteoporosis. It also focused on the metabolic rate abnormalities and cardiovascular health and other comorbid conditions that go along with this restrictive uh, relative energy deficiency. Well, the truth is it's kind of hard to separate who has an eating disorder from REDS because the two are kind of similar. I mean, there's just paying attention to what you eat and then burning off more than you bring in. But remember that eating disorder has this control issue uh, either with the food that you eat or trying to control your body image. So that's why it's kind of hard to figure out these two differences. But you also have to be suspicious of it. So if you have an otherwise healthy athlete who's doing great but who has pathological fractures, I mean, excluding an abuse issue, that's a clue to search for eating disorders because of osteopenia. I mean, if they are so low in their BMI, uh, you know, they've shut off their hypothalamic pituitary ovarian system that chronically, I mean, they get osteoporosis. That's a real health concern. So pathological fractures in an otherwise healthy athlete could raise the concern for an eating disorder. All right, when we come back, let's tackle the potential medical complications from eating disorders. Some are reversible and some may not be. We'll get into that next. In terms of medical complications, we're talking about malnutrition, which is at the root, at the heart of the problem here. And of course, malnutrition can affect every body system. And if there's purging involved, well, of course, it can also be electrolyte disturbances. But remember this. 
most complications are reversible with nutritional rehabilitation and with weight restoration. However, osteopenia, growth stunting, and cognitive changes might become irreversible. You may want to remember that. Osteopenia, growth stunting, and even cognitive changes might become irreversible. As we get towards the end of the episode, let's just take a look specifically at some specific organ systems. Regarding the cardiovascular system, hemodynamic changes like bradycardia and hypotension and orthostasis are very common in restrictive eating disorders. Bradycardia is thought to be an adaptive response to conserve energy in the settings of poor energy intake. And you're going to want to remember this. In patients with severe sinus bradycardia, junctional rhythm, prolonged QT interval, and syncope, it's recommended that they be admitted for cardiac monitoring. Regarding the GI tract, constipation, bloating, and GI discomfort are common manifestations of eating disorders. Gastroparesis and constipation are often the result of autonomic dysfunction. Now, functional disorders like gastric emptying are usually reversible with nutritional rehab, although constipation might persist even after weight restoration. In severe cases of malnutrition, patients might present with vomiting due to superior mesentery artery syndrome or gingivitis and glossitis due to vitamin deficiency. Of course, we have to talk about menstrual disturbances as women's healthcare providers. It's no surprise that restriction in energy intake and excessive exercise or both can result in loss of hypothalamic pituitary ovarian control. Secondary amenorrhea can occur in up to 66 to 84% of patients with anorexia nervosa. It's also seen in bulimia in about 40% of the cases. Self-induced vomiting has been shown to be associated with three times the rate of irregular menses, and that has to do with just a stress response of the body to self-induced vomiting. And here's something interesting. Binge eating can also lead to menstrual irregularity, even after controlling for factors like BMI and polycystic ovarian syndrome. The truth is, is that the body feels this extra physiological stress and it throws off the menstrual cycle. So binge eating, even without BMI changes, can throw off the menstrual pattern. Another medical complication that definitely lives within the realm of women's health is osteopenia and osteoporosis. In a study of young adult women with anorexia, with average duration of illness of about 70 months, who also have amenorrhea of at least 20 months, 92% developed osteopenia and 38% had diagnosable osteoporosis. The pathophysiology of decreased bone mineral density is multifactorial. This reduction in bone mass is not just estrogen-driven. I mean, there are nutritional deficiencies at play here, like calcium and vitamin D. There's reduction in those gonadal hormones that we just talked about, estradiol and testosterone. And there's also an increase in cortisol levels. All of these contribute to altered bone metabolism. There's also growth hormone resistance and changes in hormones that regulate appetite like leptin, ghrelin, and oxytocin. All of these contribute to osteopenia and osteoporosis. Now, while we can give nutritional support like increase in vitamin D and calcium, which are all good things to do, there's nothing like restoration of weight to help correct this bone loss. Resumption of menses is critical for lumbar spine BMD recovery, and weight gain is also crucial for hip BMD recovery. 
Now that we've covered some key medical complications, remember to be vigilant for these things and take a good history. And although it's important to interview the adolescent patient alone, it's also important to remember that family members or caregivers can also provide some valid insights into what's going on at home because sometimes the patient may not provide this information. So yes, it's critical to have the patient alone for the history, but having the caregiver or the parent or a close relative give some insight could could help uncover behaviors that the adolescent might not self-report. Now, you know, as women's health care providers, we cannot talk about taking care of adolescents without touching on contraception. Are birth control pills protective of bone loss in these patients? Well, we'll figure that out coming up next. Patients with eating disorders are at risk for pregnancy, and they may actually be at risk once the eating disorder, ironically, is on the mend, because that's when they can resume ovulation. So it's important to address with these patients effective contraception that suits their needs. They also need to know that pregnancy and perinatal complications might be higher in women with eating disorders who are in recovery. Remember, they still may have these nutritional deficiencies. There is some evidence that has showed that when recovery is occurring in these eating disorder patients and they get pregnant very quickly, they may be at increased risk for higher risks of miscarriage, preterm deliveries, and even smaller head circumference in their children, although some studies have not shown these associations. All to say, contrary Perception is key, but it's not as easy as you would think. If your initial thought is, well, I'm going to give them estrogen-containing birth control because the estrogen would be protective against their bones, that's actually not what the evidence show. Combined oral contraceptives do remain the most popular method of choice for healthy adolescents. And even though the data is more favorable for those that have 30 micrograms of ethnyl estradiol or more in terms of bone formation, they're not equal to the normal restoration of menses and physiologic levels of estrogen. In other words, the best thing to protect the bone is weight gain, not oral contraceptive pills. <laughs> Wait, 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 wait. Hold on a minute. We have to rewind something here in in talking about birth control and estrogen and bone health. Because on ABOG's maintenance of certification from 2022, yeah, not this one, the one from the year before, this was also addressed. This was also from the same journal, the Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology. And I want to cover that just real quickly because there's great text in here that I've actually been able to talk to my patients with. I've discussed this with our nurse practitioners in the office, and it's, it's just a good reference to have. This article from 2022's MOC list is called Bones and Bone Health in Adolescent Girls. And I just want to touch on the the idea that these birth control pills taken by mouth, just because it's estrogen, we got to get that, that solidified that that's not the same as normal endogenous estrogen. Birth control pills do suppress endogenous estrogen production. Duh, that's how birth controls work. But they also inhibit hepatic synthesis of IGF-1. That's that potent bone anabolic agent. And this is also described in that Journal of Pediatric and Adolescent Gynecology from the 2022 reading list. Here's what it states. Quote, 
healthy young women not on birth control pills have mean serum estradiol levels of around 120 picograms per ml. 120, okay? And at mid-cycle, they can get up to 200 picograms per ml. But women on combined oral contraceptives containing 30 micrograms of ethanyl estradiol have mean estradiol levels of around 44 picograms per ml. Y'all see that difference there? The endogenous level is around 120. And on estrogen-containing birth controls, on a 30-microgram pill, it's only 44. And for those patients that have an ultra-low-dose pill, like a 20-microgram dose, then their serum levels of estradiol is only 41 picograms per ml. So just because they're taking oral birth control pills does not mean that they have normal physiologic ranges of estrogen levels. Anyway, I just thought that was interesting because a similar concept was discussed last year's in ABOG's MOC when it talked about bone health in adolescence. And again, I just thought those numbers were interesting. Spontaneous, normal cycle estrogen levels around 120. Taking a 30 microgram pill gets you around 44. And if you're on an ultra low dose pill, it's just barely over 40 picograms per ml. All right, now let's get back on track. Weight restoration and resumption of menses are the most important for preserving bone health in young women with anorexia nervosa. The use of birth control pills has been reported to be ineffective in increasing BMD in adolescents with the condition. Now, this is because ethnyl estradiol is not the most physiological form of estrogen, and because of hepatic first pass, it downregulates the immunoglobulin of IGF-1, that's insulin-like growth factor 1 that has an anabolic effect on bone. So just because they're on oral birth control pills containing estrogen, don't think they have adequate estrogen levels. They are still relatively hypoestrogenemic compared to physiological levels of estrogen. If you are considering giving a patient estrogen to protect the bone, then it has to be transdermal like 17-beta estradiol. Hormone replacement with 17-beta estradiol does provide a more physiological form of estrogen, and because it's through the transdermal route, they do not have the same first-pass effect as oral medication. This can have a better effect on BMD in adolescents with anorexia nervosa. However, remember this is not contraceptive and you can't give unopposed estrogen forever. So that's the, the delicate balance there. The whole take home on birth control for BMD is that the best answer is to just increase weight. But if you're going to use supplemental estrogen, birth control pills aren't enough, then consider using 17-beta estradiol. But remember, it cannot be done long-term because you can't do unopposed estrogen forever. All to say that this should not be done in isolation. They still need adequate calcium, which is 1,300 milligrams per day, and adequate vitamin D, which is 600 units per day. Back to the topic of contraception, remember that larks are great options for adolescents because they are user-free. I mean, you place it and they don't have to think about it. The levonorgestrel intrauterine device also has no negative effect on BMD. Studies on the effect of the eternorgestrel implant on BMD have actually been mixed. Some studies show no difference in users of the implant, and one other study did show a decrease in BMD in the lumbar spine compared with copper intrauterine device users. Now, it's important to note that when you use Nexplanon, the patient does have a relative hypoestrogenemic state. However, it's not as low as, for example, Depo-Provera. 
Depomedroxyprogesterone acetate is a very effective contraceptive method, but because it does contribute to decreased BMDs, using it in patients with eating disorders that are already at risk for low bone mineral density is not the wisest choice when other contraceptive agents are available. As we get ready to wrap this up, here's the final clinical pearl, and you may want to remember this. The good news is that with early identification, early diagnosis, the prognosis and plan for recovery is actually pretty good. Studies show that more than three-quarters, that's three-fourths of young patients with these eating disorders, they do recover, they do develop normal eating and weight control habits, and they can return to normal activities, including activities at school, at work, and with their social relationships. All right, podcast family, that brings us to a wrap. We have covered an article from the ABOG Maintenance of Certification list from the first distribution of articles in 2023. The title of this article is Eating Disorders in Children and Adolescents, a Practical Review and Update for Pediatric Gynecologists. As always, we're thankful for you, and we'll see you on another episode of Clinical Pearls.